unity is like. And uh, we have to talk about it because when you read it, it's one of those things that doesn't make much sense to us. Let's read the whole psalm since it's such a short one. Go back to verse 1, Psalm 133, 1. And he says, Behold, or pay attention to this, how good and pleasant it is for brethren, that's a family relationship turn, to dwell together in unity. And it's like the precious oil upon the beard, running down the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. That's what we talked about last week. Now he tells us another thing. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life evermore. Life evermore. Talking about um, heaven and talking about the eternal life that the Lord gives. And so uh, the Lord tells us it's good and precious when there is unity. Now we don't always notice unity, but we notice when it's not there, don't we? And uh, you can tell when it's not there. We want it for our family. We want it in our friendships. We certainly want it in our church. We're the people of God. And the Holy Spirit in us ought to be able to get along with the Holy Spirit in uh, everybody else. And we don't want this um, clash. If you think about uh, what we uh, did last week, we played individual notes on the piano, okay, and said, but it's nice when they're different and they harmonize, because that's what we're talking about, okay? Here's another thing to think about. That's called disunity. Everybody on their own doing their own thing. Think about a team, for example. What if a football team went out when it was their time on offense and they had no idea what the play was? They didn't call a play. Just do whatever you want to do. So the center doesn't know when he's supposed to hike the ball. And uh, the receivers don't know if the ball's coming to them or not. The running backs have no idea, and the line just kind of, you know, do whatever comes up. What happens when you do that? You lose. And the Lord has placed us together in his body, and it's by his choice that we are in the body, and we also have certain gifts, spiritual gifts, and these gifts, Paul says, they differ, but they're given according to the will of the Holy Spirit, right? The Lord knows what we need and who we need and when we need them and we do what we are supposed to do according to the work of the Spirit within us and the gifting that we have. And when that happens, everything works together in perfect unity and we give a good picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only to the world, that's certainly important, but also to give that picture to our children. We want them, when they come to church, we want them to feel the love of Christ. We want them to see the holiness of God. We want them to see the power of God, the grace and the mercy of God. And uh, that, of course, is going to be seen through us. And so the prize here is put on unity. When we're all together and we're all working together in the power of the Holy Spirit according to the plan of God, that it's a beautiful a good and a pleasant thing. Now, when I played those notes on the piano, 
If uh, we had that Sunday morning and all we had was somebody like me just banging on the piano and uh, everybody in the orchestra, they're just playing whatever they want to play and, uh, you know, the trumpets are playing Stars and Stripes forever and clarinets are playing a Benny Goodman tune and, you know, that type of thing and the drums just, you know... Uh, all kinds of cacophony and messed up. You, you might look at that and maybe if you're a very nice person, you might tolerate that. You know, well, they're trying their best. Well, they're, you know, they're, they're doing what they need to do and we'll just put up with it or tolerate it. Now, one of the things I thought about today when I was uh, walking and getting my exercise is tolerance is promoted by the world today, especially if you're on the liberal side of things, we ought to be just tolerant of everybody. You know what I thought of? Tolerant is not a nice word. If I tolerate you, I don't really like you very much. Wouldn't that be right? Can you imagine it's your anniversary, your 25th anniversary, okay? And you go to your wife and you give her flowers and you give her a gift and you say, you know, uh, I uh, really, really, really want you to know how much I tolerate you. <laughs> how does that come across? Not, not very good. And, of course, she would probably say back, you have no idea, buddy, how much. And that would be true, wouldn't it? Toleration. We, we talk about it. It makes it sound nice. We, we ought to be tolerant on what we do. Tolerant is not a loving word. It's not a loving word. Now, harmony and unity, when we're together, when we want to be together, when we welcome people, when we work together with people, when we are able to yield to other people, there, there's something that is good and special and beautiful about that. And that's what the psalmist is saying. It's good and pleasant when family members don't just tolerate one another, but when they dwell together in unity. He uses that term brethren. It's a family term because Israel is basically the, uh, related. They're all of the DNA of Abraham, aren't they? And uh, they're the children of Jacob. And so they have a family relationship. So it's good when all of the tribes, when they, when they get along and when they are in unity. There are some people who think this psalm was written when King David became the king over all 12 tribes of Israel. That was a good thing. They're dwelling together in unity. One purpose and one government and one God and one temple and one military and one country. They're all together. And so that's a good thing. And so uh, tolerance is something we need to kind of rethink a little bit. Do we just tolerate people who are different or do we love them? Do we have a, a bond with them? Are we in harmony with them? And then that is a good and pleasant thing. That's what we want in our church. That's what we want certainly in our families. That's what makes a marriage work. That's uh, what we are shooting for and certainly in a nation. And it's something that we can be praying about. It's good and it's pleasant. Okay? Now it's like the day when they anointed Aaron and they were pouring. You remember we looked at the... Uh, stuff that was in that anointing oil and the sweet smell that it would put off. 
And it affected every part of Aaron. It wasn't just a little dab on the top of his head. It ran down his beard. It uh, touched his garment. Everywhere he went after that anointing, you could smell it. You could tell that he was there. And that's the way it ought to be when the Holy Spirit anoints us. There ought to be a unity and we ought to kind of smell the same, I guess you would say. That sweet smelling aroma that comes from the Lord. Okay, I can kind of get that. But... What in the world does it mean when it talks about the dew of Hermon? Well, there's a picture on the front there. That is Mount Hermon, and that is in Israel. And um, we'll talk a little bit about that because you can see it's uh, very high, and it's also snow-capped. It stays snow-capped year-round. Uh, perhaps Solomon, when he wanted ice for his sweet tea, he would send somebody to uh, Mount Hermon to go up to the top and get it and bring it back. That would be a long way and it would be quite a job. That's why, uh, did you know that when ice cream was first invented, only the very rich could ever have it? Wasn't something you just go to Brahms and get an ice cream cone or pull out your freezer and get the ice and the rock salt and make up the mixture and then churn the ice cream yourself. You didn't have anything cold really at all. And uh, maybe if you had a creek by your house that had cool water in it, you might be able to have something cool, but cold didn't really exist, and freezers and that type of thing didn't exist unless you could get to a snow-covered peak or something like that and then uh, get the ice. It would have been uh, very, very luxurious. Maybe he did it. I don't know. But uh, that's how it would work. They always had snow on top of Mount Hermon. Where did the snow come from? And here's what is interesting about that. It came from the dew that would fall upon Mount Hermon. And some of it would freeze and some of it would run off. Now when we think about dew, we don't think about anything like that because whatever dew we've had, well, it sure hadn't greened up my grass. Has it yours? It's just a little bit that comes up. So part of this we can understand, but not very well. Why would the psalmist say it's like the dew of Hermon? And why would the Holy Spirit inspire him to say that? And why would it be included in the Word of God? And this is one of those things where we have to build a bridge backwards. We've got to go back to their culture. We've got to think like them, like the original audience did, because they would have understood this. So first thing we'll talk about is, why is unity like the dew? And if you think about uh, dew that you see in your yard and the dew that would be on Mount Hermon, think about it. It comes from above, and so does unity. If we're ever going to have the kind of unity that pleases God, it has to come from above. It's not something we manufacture. It's not something that we work up. It's not tolerance. About the best we can do is tolerate one another and that's not really what the goal is God puts us together and he gives us true spiritual unity it's also something do appears suddenly um, you don't really see it on uh, David Payne's radar oh the dew is falling right now it just kind of kind of appears the grass can be dry one moment and all of a sudden it just as it condenses then it's just there and there's something about the unity that God gives we can't really explain it. It's not really programmatic. We don't do it in a way to where, uh, can you imagine, go back to Acts chapter 2 in the early church, 
and the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they're all, the Bible says, they're in one accord. Why were they in one accord? Because of the work of the Spirit of God that pulled them together and the Spirit's indwelling just came suddenly upon them and they're a different group of people and they're working and thinking as one and uh, the Bible says then that every person out there heard the gospel in their own language. How do you program that? How do you manufacture that? It just happened when the Holy Spirit caused it to happen. And the Spirit puts us together <coughs> in unity here. And they're, you know, when somebody comes up to me and they say, I'm really learning to love you, that disturbs me a little bit. What, what is it about me that you have to learn to love? You know? Now, maybe your love can get better because we're never good enough at it, but we ought to love one another just because we are children of God. And so that's what, it hap that's what happened in the early church and why they had so much power. They were of one accord, and it wasn't programmed, it wasn't manufactured, it wasn't just a tolerance of one another. Uh, it was brought about by the Spirit of God like the dew that appears suddenly. It also happens when the conditions are right. You know, when you uh, think about a church or a family that is disunified, there are usually reasons for that. When we try to counsel somebody about problems in their marriage, uh, we want to give them hope and show them that the Lord can bring things together, but eventually we're going to have to identify what is causing them to be apart, to not like each other, to not get along, to not be pulling in the same direction. What's making the clash and the dissonance, the discord like on the piano a while ago? What, what, there's a reason for all of that. And we have to figure that out. But when the conditions are right, you don't really have to work hard at unity. It just happens. It's a byproduct of people that love each other and people that are in harmony, but the conditions have to be right. There's got to be moisture in the air and all of the other things that happen for the dew to appear. And there are certain things that have to be in place in order for us to have unity, and we'll try to talk about that at the end. I also think it's interesting that dew comes in the darkness. It doesn't come in the daytime. It comes in the darkness. And some of those times when we feel like we are in the dark, when we are being persecuted, when we're being shut out, when the world is against us, when the enemy is attacking us, times seem to be dark. That's when the dew, the unity really appears. And there's something about a church when it goes through a time of like sorrow or tragedy or persecution or something like that, that we rally when that happens. We come together when that happens. And I don't think we're ever more unified than we are when we are under attack. Now, the enemy would love to pull us apart and get us going in different directions. And sometimes that happens. But uh, when the dew falls, the dew of Hermon falls, and the Spirit of God brings us together, we rally and we pull together and we defend each other and we serve each other and we help each other because uh, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And so there's something that pulls us together and makes us of one accord whenever something bad seems to happen because dew tends to fall in the darkness. Now, secondly... The question would be, well, why is unity like a particular dew? Because the psalmist didn't say, you know, it's just like the dew. Go out and look at your yard 
at uh, you know six o'clock in the morning and the grass will be wet. Yeah, that's what unity is. He didn't say that, did he? He said it's like the dew of Hermon. Now we have to do a little work and figure out what is so special about the dew that is in Mount Hermon. Why would he use that type of a simile here? The dew of Hermon. It's uh, different and it's very specific from just everyday common dew that might come on our grass. And I want you to think about this because the dew of Hermon is a life-giving dew. I'm going to read you something in just a moment that will explain that. And it's something that is necessary. Israel is not rainforest, is it? Uh, there's a lot of desert there in uh, Israel, and parts of it are, are very, very arid. And uh, yet there are rivers, and there are springs, and there are different things like that. And the psalmist and the people reading this would understand how important this mountain is in terms of their everyday life. Now, first of all, I want you to think about this. Here's a quote from John MacArthur. It says, Mount Hermon, a 9,200-foot peak at the extreme northern portion of Palestine, provided the major water supply for the Jordan River. You ever heard of the Jordan River? It's where that water comes from. It comes from Mount Hermon, when the snows melt and that type of thing. Well, there has to be snow there before it can melt. And this snow that you see on top of the mountain is coming from the dew that falls upon Mount Hermon. Now, not all of it freezes. Some of it uh, doesn't. Some of it descends. We read that uh, in this particular passage that we looked at. It descends. And just like it comes down Aaron's beard when you pour the oil on him, the dew descends. I've never seen any dew like that. The dew that I'm used to seeing, it pretty much stays put. It doesn't run. It doesn't fill rivers. It doesn't fill creeks and branches and springs and wells and all of that type of thing. But this dew does. Let me read you something that came from a Dr. McMillan, who is an expert in the Middle East. He says, The dew of Hermon and the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, to which the psalmist referred, differs entirely from the ordinary dew of our country and is a phenomenon peculiar to Palestine and the East. Listen to this. It is a soft mist that comes from the Mediterranean during the summer. Okay? Different than our dew. We don't have an ocean or anything like that right around us, so our dew is a little bit different. And notice it comes during the summer. It comes when the heat is the greatest and the country is burnt up with the terrible sunshine. Well, we can kind of relate to that, can't we? It is attracted by the inland heights, the elevation of the mountain, and condensed in copious, that means great measure, copious moisture upon their sides, and it creeps down upon the plains, reviving and refreshing every green thing. It comes, first of all, to Mount Hermon and helps to keep up its unchanging robe of snow, but also to fill its springs, to feed its cedars, and then it flows down and makes the corn to grow green in the valleys, 
and the vines to swell, uh, swell out their purple grapes in the vineyards. And the lilies, you've heard Jesus talk about the lilies of the field, and the lilies unfold their crimson radius, radiance in the fields. And it is to this wonderful phenomenon that the psalmist compares the unity and harmony of those who dwell together as brethren. So this is something that was very important and known to Israel. Whatever it was that would blow from the Mediterranean and blow constantly in the heat of summer, it would condense and settle on Mount Hermon. Some of it would freeze, and the rest of it would begin to run down the sides of that mountain and uh, begin to fill the uh, creeks and all of that, and even to the Jordan River itself that would flow into uh, the part of of Israel that would be known as Zion. And, and so uh, all of these things, the crops and the cattle and all of these things, the irrigation is possible because of this. And uh, this is all tied back to this one particular mountain. So that's kind of interesting when you think about that. Unity is like that. Unity is like that. So let's move on to a third question. So what does unity do? And if we have this simile, the things that we just read, it fills up rivers, it makes crops grow, uh, cattle are going to be able to eat, all of this kind of stuff is happening. It uh, leads me to say this. Unity is something that refreshes people. One of the reasons that unity in the church is so important is because it is so difficult to find in the world. I have had people tell me when church would be over, I don't want to go home. Why don't you want to go home? Because I'm not married to a Christian, and our home is rough, and it's so nice to be here with people who believe like I do, who are related to me, and it's just so peaceful here. Maybe you've experienced that. When you think about people that uh, what life is like for them when they're on their job, there's competition, somebody's always after them, backstabbing, those kind of things. And when they come into the church, it ought to feel different than their workplace does. The church ought to feel different than a political rally. The church ought to feel different than Congress, for example. The church is a different place because we are unified, not around our economics, not around our likes and dislikes, not around anything like that at all, but we are unified around the gospel and around the word of God and around the Lord Jesus himself. We're not just a group of people who believe certain things, even though we do believe certain things, and that's important, but it's more than that. Christianity is not about a set of beliefs, it's about a person. And that person, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we can't unify around anything else, let's unify around Jesus and around what he taught and around what he gave us in his word. And it ought to be that when people come in from being beat up, torn up, harassed and bruised and battered out in the world or maybe in their own family, it ought to be that coming in here is like the dew of Mount Hermon that flows down and it's just refreshing. It's just something that rejuvenates us. It also is something that is abundant. 
You know, in uh, Israel, as we read about this, it wasn't just a little bit of dew. Just like on Aaron when he was anointed, it wasn't just, as we said, uh, the old Brill Cream commercial, a little dabble, do you? Not like that. It was poured on him, and it ran off of his head. It ran over, the, over his face and the sides of his face. It came to his beard, and it even ran down upon those priestly robes that he would wear. When they poured it, they poured a lot of it. And the psalmist said, that's the way the dew is when it comes off of Mount Hermon. Not all of it froze on that snow-capped peak. Other parts of it came in. I mean, we're talking about a tremendous amount of condensation we're talking about a tremendous amount of moisture that is blown in from the mediterranean and uh, there at mount hermon that's where it condenses and it begins to run it's a uh, more like a mist a heavy mist that comes upon that and so we think about the word abundance it's not just a little bit of unity. It's not just a little bit of getting along with one another. That's what the world does. They can work it up and they can manufacture it, but it's not real and it's not organic and it's not something... I mean, it's got its point to where they say, that's it. I've had enough. I'm through with all of this. No, Christian unity is in abundance. It's what you may, what's make you, it's what makes you, I can say that, keep trying in a troubled marriage. Because all marriages are troubled marriages. But there's an abundance of the do that keeps you working and keeps you together. It's what causes you not to give up on your kids. It's what causes you not to give up on a fellow church member. There's always hope. If they truly are saved and a part of the body of Christ, they may be in rebellion. They may be like the prodigal son, but there's always hope. The father did not go to the hog pen with the prodigal son, but he did go and watch for him, and he waited for him. How many people do you pray for maybe that are out of fellowship with the church and out of fellowship with the Lord? And instead of just writing them off and pushing them away, it's like the... Motel 6 commercials where Tom Bodet with that music, he says, we'll leave the light on for you. And that ought to be something that for everybody that has left the church or is out of fellowship with the church and out of fellowship with the Lord, we ought to leave the light on for them so that they know there's always a way back and the doors are always open to them whenever they want to be restored and get right with the Lord. There ought to be a welcome that we give them. Not a repulsion, not a fear, but we are here. Nobody else is going to love you like we love you because we know you. And nobody else is going to love you like we love you because we've been through the same things. And nobody else is going to love you because we are the body of Christ and our doors, and more than that, our hearts are open to sinners like us, to rebels like us. And so this is all something that is refreshing to those who were in the battle and those who were in the desert. It's abundant. It just never runs out because it, it descends like the oil that runs from Aaron's beard. It ought to be something that is unusual. It ought to be when people come into the church building, they sense something here, they feel something here, and they find something here and experience something here that is not just a cheap imitation of the world. See, there are a lot of churches today that they are working really, really hard at trying to be uh, a rock concert. 
And so a lost person that goes and they watch some group. I just pull an old one out. They go to watch ZZ Top. And then they come into the church. And on Sunday morning, the church for their offering is playing the same thing that ZZ Top would play. And you know what they're going to say? Well, that's kind of interesting, but it's not as good as ZZ Top. It's a cheap imitation, a class B of that type of thing. And whenever we try to imitate the world, there's a church around that during the summer they have movie Sundays and that kind of thing. What, what does the world really think about that and what is really accomplished by that? Well, it might be cool because it's different than normal church than I'm used to, but it'll never be as good as Hollywood. It'll never be as good as what the world can do. And there will come a time when they will think it's interesting. They'll watch it. It'll be curious. But like a cat playing with a mouse before it kills it, eh, not interested anymore. Bored with all of this. Let's just get rid of it. That's going to happen. But when there is true, organic, spirit-filled unity in a church... That is something where we have the upper hand. That is something where we are doing what the world can never do. The world can never manufacture unity. And the world can never experience unity like we have. Because we don't have to manufacture it. We don't have to work it up. It's something that is true in us. Because we, going back to Acts chapter 2, are indwelt... By the Spirit of God. And we are together because of what God has done. And so when we think about what is the strength of the church. Well it's not finding out what the world likes. And what is cool in the world. Now we don't want to be inhospitable. And we don't want to be doing something that is so foreign that nobody could understand it. That's why the Catholic Church quit doing their masses in Latin. What was happening there? Nobody could understand anything that was about it. We don't want to be like that and be off-putting. The light's on. The welcome mat's out. We want people to come and we want to be friendly to them. And we want them to experience what we have. We want them to be in awe of the God that we serve. And so when we think about that, we consider the fact that nobody in the world, no matter how much money you have, no matter how much talent they have, no matter what kind of producers that they have, no matter what it is, they can never, ever duplicate what we have right here tonight. And that's something that we need to look at and say, wow, we have the upper hand in all of this. And that's what the early church did in Acts chapter 2. They didn't have money. They didn't have political favor. They didn't have social favor with anything. And yet when the Holy Spirit came upon them, and then when Peter stepped up to preach, interesting, the guy that just a few days before had denied the Lord, now he's boldly proclaiming the Lord, and 3,000 souls are added to the church that day. Boy, that's a change in dynamic. Why? Because they weren't trying to duplicate what the world did. They were doing what only they could do. And I want to ask you a question. What is it? that God has put in your life and gifted you to do that nobody else can do unless they've been gifted by God to do it. And that's what we ought to go out in the world with. 
That's what the world ought to be seeing in us when we gather and even when we scatter and are out there. There's something different about you that cannot be faked. It cannot be manufactured. It cannot be worked up any more than the dew on top of Mount Hermon could be made with anything that man does. It's different and it is something that is unusual. It also is something that is profitable. We read about uh, from Dr. McMillan about how the, this dew that comes down off of the mountain, that it uh, fills everything, even to the point of giving water from the melting snow to the Jordan River. But he also mentioned some other things that the dew itself does. It makes the corn grow green. Well, what does a farmer do with the corn? Well, sure, he eats some of it. He may feed some of it to his cattle, but the rest of it, what's he going to do? If he has a bumper crop, he's going to sell it. And when he sells it, he's going to buy shoes for his children. He's going to buy food that he wasn't able to raise. He's going to maybe buy more cattle. Maybe he's going to add on to his house. Maybe he's going to buy a nice present for his wife. Maybe they're going to take a trip and finally go to Jerusalem for Passover and worship the Lord there. Think about what happens on that. It is profitable. When the vineyard produces all of the grapes, what does the farmer do with those grapes? Well, they're going to be sold. Wine is going to be made and produced, and it's going to be sold. And so we talk about unity, and we talk about it being profitable. One of the ways that churches die is when they get out of unity and out of sorts. But when they begin to come together, and they come together around the Lord and around the things of God, and they begin to pray together, and they begin to work together, and they harmonize, I don't know how to explain it, but all of a sudden people start getting saved. People start wanting to be a part of what is going on there. There's a joy and there's power and there's energy and there's strength in all of that. They don't complain. They're not negative. They're not looking at everything that they don't have. They're looking at what they do have, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus made this statement in the context of church discipline. Where two or three are gathered in my name, what happens? There I am in the midst. What more do you need? What more do you need? And so God is not looking around saying, how much money do you have? How much talent do you have? How many people do you have? Oh, if we just had double this tonight, I could really do something. He never says that in the Bible. Never says anything even remotely close to that. But what he is saying to our hearts tonight is, be unified around me and rejoice and look at what you do have that the world does not have. You have me. And it's a profitable thing. Because God is growing us in grace and knowledge. He's using us to plant seeds. He's using us to water seeds. And the Bible says, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. And if we go forth weeping, bearing precious seed, we will doubtless come again bearing the harvest. Hang on. Keep planting. Keep watering. Keep sowing the seed because the harvest will come in because the dew of Hermon that we talk about here that is a simile for unity is profitable. And notice here that it also benefits others. Who benefits from the dew of Hermon? Just the mountain? 
Just the people who live on the mountain, just the farms that are close to the mountain. No, it went all the way in to Jerusalem. It went all the way in to Zion where the people gathered to worship. Why? Because whenever we are in unity, that good and pleasant unity, it's not going to just be something that we go, ah, man, I love this and I enjoy this. You will, but it's also going to make you a blessing to other people. That is the design of God. Which, number four, why does unity please God? And it pleases Him because it pictures the Lord Himself. He's a trinity, a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You ever wondered if the Lord Jesus and the Father ever get in an argument? You ever wonder if they plan something and then the Holy Spirit goes, well, here's a better way to do it, or I'm not going to be a part of that. I mean, we do those kind of things, but God never does. And unity pictures the Lord. And that's why he wants us to be in unity. It also pictures the plan. It talks about in these verses his commands. And guess what? His commands never contradict. He never forgets anything. And he never commands one thing here in one place that is going to clash with something he commands later on. Because he never forgets. He's got it all perfectly worked out. And it also makes... The Lord's blessing and experience. See, when you look at Mount Hermon and you see the snow on the peak, you see it, but you don't experience it. But when the water comes down and you're able to drink of that water, you're able to water your crops with that water, you're able to bathe in that water, you're able to take care of your family because of what the water has brought you, you're able to eat because of what the water has brought you, it benefits something else. And so we are here as a church body not just to benefit ourselves, even though we will, there's nothing wrong with that, but it also flows out. It's the living water that flows out and it goes out into our community. We take it with us to our workplaces, to our schools, to our neighborhoods, everywhere that we go. And it uh, makes all of this something that is an experience. And we don't want to just be the only ones that experience it. Other people need to experience the blessing of God. And also, he talks about life everlasting in here. And I thought about this. It gives us a, quote an old hymn, a foretaste of glory divine. What in the world is a foretaste? Not terribly long ago, I smoked a brisket. And uh, smoked it for hours and hours and hours. Brought it in, and of course you let it rest and all of that. And then we get it out, and Sammy's getting ready to slice it. Okay, so we pull it out. We had it in a in an in an ice chest sealed up. And we pull it out now, and we put it on the cutting board and unwrap it. Oh my goodness, did it ever smell good? And you know what I had to do? Hadn't been cut up yet. It's not dinner time yet. What did I do? I had a foretaste. Pull it off, taste that bark and the spices on it, and a little bit of the meat, maybe a little bit of the fat even. Oh, man, it was good, a foretaste. Now, we still got together and we had dinner, and we still fed everybody, and we ate all of that, but I just wanted a foretaste of it. You know what? 
When the old hymn says, Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Every time we get together and we have unity around Christ and around His Word, you know what you're doing? You're picking off a good piece of the brisket and tasting it and go, Oh, man, that is going to be really, really good. And you know, when we were singing tonight, you know what God was giving us? A foretaste of heaven. When we look at the Word of God and we start understanding it and start applying it to our lives, we're getting a little foretaste of what we're going to have in heaven. Oh, man, that is so good. Except in heaven, you're going to have the whole thing. In heaven, it's going to be unending. Here, just a taste. Just a taste. And the Lord says, look, I've got something prepared for you that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. But here's a taste. Here's a taste. And that's why it says it's good and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity because when we gather, when we sing, when we pray, when we give, when we preach, when we worship, when we respond, when we relate to one another, it's a foretaste of glory divine and it pleases God. Now, without unity, what happens? We destroy our witness. Who wants to be like us? You need what we've got. Don't want it. Not interested. When we are disunified, we forfeit the blessing of God. God's not going to bless what He cursed. He's not going to bless what doesn't please Him. We become withdrawn and inwardly focused. It's all about me, and nobody's going to hurt me. Nobody's going to betray me. Nobody's going to. And we, we pull in, don't we? And when we do that, we're certainly not fulfilling the Great Commission. We've got to get over that. And we also do not bless other people. We're too interested in being blessed ourselves. I'm not going to go to that because I don't get anything out of it. Where in the Bible do you find that as your command and your goal? You go to give. You go to contribute. You go to bless. You go to minister. That's what it's all about. And also... We do not give an accurate picture of God. And here we are saying, we're the body of Christ. We don't like each other. We don't want to be together. We are all withdrawn. We are all inwardly focused on all of that. Is that the way God is? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, no. He is giving. He is pouring His life into us and working through us to reach other people. And so uh, we give the wrong picture. And I'm going to use an outline that you, uh, if you've been around here very long, you've heard this before. How do we gain unity? How do you gain it in your family? How do you gain it in a church? And it would be just simply this. No personal rights. What happens to divide us? I've got my rights, and I'm not sharing them with you, and you're not going to trample on my rights. I have a right. That'll destroy a marriage fast. It's what makes kids leave home and not want to come back. It's what happens in churches that make people want to fight and argue and divide over silly things like the color of a carpet. When we have a grand and glorious God, all we can see is ourselves. What about the fact that we have uh, no personal praise? You know? Nobody thanks me. If nobody notices me, if nobody is enthralled by me, if nobody is responding to me, well, then I'll just quit. That's what tears up churches, isn't it? What about no personal limitations? Oh, I could never do that. Well, you can if God commands it. Because God supplies the power. 
And God's not sitting back going, oh, man, if only you had more. No, he supplies everything that you need. And then no personal sacrifice, which means we don't sit around and whine about what it cost us, how much time we put into it, how much study we did with all of this, and nobody appreciates it, nobody notices. Hey, you know, we do that from time to time. And we act like we've given up something for God, and then we look around and we go, wait a minute, no, the sacrifice was made by Jesus. And how much did Jesus give? Everything in order to pay for us. So how could he ever ask too much of us, right? And when we get this together, we start seeing the unity, and the psalmist would say, it's like the dew that comes down from Mount Hermon, that waters, that refreshes, that brings life, that all of those things in abundance... Because it's coming down from God himself who has a limitless supply of everything that we need. We've just got to surrender. We've just got to be broken before God. We've got to recognize that it's not God who's dependent upon us. It's we who are dependent upon God. And we have a God who is willing to give us everything we need to fulfill his will and to be like the dew that comes from Mount Hermon to be like the anointing oil that flows down the beard of Aaron. And oh, man, it smells good. Oh, it's wonderful because it's all a little foretaste of glory divine. We are an outpost and a colony of heaven. Think about it. And what's your part in it? No personal rights, no personal praise, no personal limitations, and no personal sacrifice. In other words, to sum it up, get over yourself. Get over yourself and start serving and yielding to Jesus and all of that will be taken care of and all God's people in unity said, Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, what we pray for tonight is not that we would be a group that gets together of individuals. Father, we pray that we could come together in harmony to be an army. Everyone having our place, having our weapons, having our mission, having our assignment so we can be, as the old song says, onward Christian soldiers. Not just a crowd walking around, scrounging and looking for what we can get, going our own way, doing our own thing, resenting other people and daring other people to tell us what to do and even questioning how, what, who made you the authority over me. No, we have one authority, and that's God himself who has expressed his will through his word and given us our mission. May we work together in the power of the Spirit of God in a new unusual and fresh way and we pray we would do this so that we as Graceway Baptist Church would be good and pleasant to you because we are your family giving an accurate picture of the word and benefiting other people while we also are benefited ourselves by the dew that comes from Mount Hermon and this we pray in Jesus name Amen, Amen.